G'day guys. Well, welcome everyone. Welcome to Life in the Peloton. I'm Mitch Stocker and this podcast this year, as you know, is being brought to you by our great partner, Rafa. I want to have a quick chat to you about Rafa and some of the great things that they're doing, the Rafa Prestige. That was something that I got to do last year in Bonnie Doon of all places. It was a great event, something I had no idea about. The Rafa Prestige is all about riding for your teammates. It takes place in some of the world's greatest riding destinations, places you don't often get to ride. This year's Rafa Prestige, the one in Australia, is going to take place in Aubrey Wodonga. Personally, I've never really ridden around there. So that's a great thing about it. I don't know many people that get to travel to these places. Every team must work together and most importantly, stay together as they navigate through remote routes on an all-day-long adventure. It's all about adventure, teamwork and resilience. You get through the day with your team and you get to celebrate together at the end. Have a cold beer, have a warm meal. That's what's great about it. It's sort of sharing the experience together. If you're in Australia and you want to get involved, you've only got about six weeks. So don't muck around. It's happening in March, like I said, in Aubrey. Check it out. I've got my team organized. I'm going to be there. It's a great event. I love these sort of things Rafa's doing. It's all about making cycling the most popular sport in the world. On the weekend, I was down at the Otway Odyssey mountain bike event. It was early starts, and if you heard my episode I did on it last year, you know how demanding it is. It's absolutely brutal. Go and listen to that episode, my opening weekend. It's a real laugh, I can tell you. But one thing I took down with me was my Athletic Greens AG1 travel packs. That's the way I start every day, and it was all the more important down there because it was early starts before a tough day and I was glad that I had it with me. I wanted to start every day right. It's one of the things I've taken over from my pro life. I was taking AG1 when I was racing in Europe because I wanted to make sure I was getting all my greens, my vitamins, my minerals, my whole food source, superfoods, and my probiotics in. It's the all-in-one daily nutrition foundation for optimal health, and that's why I'm still using it today. It's important for me to feel good out there at all these little events that I'm doing now, these hard mountain bike races, but also for my general life, for my family. It's just a great way to start the day. I simply mix it up with about 450 ml of water. I throw a couple of ice cubes in there because I like it nice and cold. I shake it up, down the hatch it goes. It's that simple. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, the Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go across to athleticgreens.com slash lifeinthepelton that's athleticgreens.com slash life in the Peloton. Check it out. Now the episode this week, how to be a DS, a director sportive. The whole idea came about because I was racing some mountain bike events last year and I ran into a good friend of mine, Brendan Johnson, Brendan Trekkie Johnson. He's a mountain biker, multiple time marathon mountain bike Aussie champ. He's pretty good at what he does, and we've been in touch over the last few years. He's been asking some advice for me because he's also finished podium at the National Road Championships as well. A really handy bike rider. And in one of these events, he asked me, Hey Mitch, do you reckon you could be my director at the National Championships in January? I enthusiastically said yes. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll do that. And I walked away from the conversation thinking, oh, I actually don't really know how to be a DS. Well, luckily for me, a lot of my friends from the Peloton have become DSs. So I thought, well, what a great chance to reach out to these guys and learn how to become a director sportif before I line up with Brendan at the Australian Championships in January. 
I went away and chatted with Tom Southern, a favorite from the podcast, and we talked about the whole history of DSing. Where's this actually come from? Director Sportif. Well, if you don't know what a Director Sportif is, quite simply, that's the guy who drives behind the riders in the race, giving the calls in the radio, but that's not where it stops. They're organizing the riders outside of the race. They're organizing the staff as well, the mechanics, the soigneurs. They're designing the race programs. There's a lot that goes into the job. Tom and I talk about the history of the job. Then I go and chat with Sam Bewley, a recently retired pro who has just become a DS. From there, I'm speaking with Zach Demser, who's been a director for three years and is now transitioning into arguably one of the biggest teams in Yos Grenadiers, moving up the ranks as a DS. Gregory Russ, an old friend from Switzerland, who's been a DS for about five years, a bit more ingrained into the system. It was great to hear his opinion. And lastly, we speak with Brett Lancaster, who was for seven years on the biggest team in Yos as a director. A lot of experience there. So I've run through the ranks. I've got different angles and they've helped me become a DS. Finally, at the end of the episode, I get a chance to put it all together and put the skills to practice and go out there and be Trekkies DS at the national championships. Of course, I recorded that for you guys. Luckily for me, I had Brett Lancaster in the car because these days to be a complete package, you need to have two DSs in the car. One concentrating on the driving, the other one concentrating on the tactics. So I concentrated on the tactics It was going to be way too much for me to do both anyway. And luckily for me, I had one of the best in the business. Like I said, Brett Lancaster joined me on the day. Guys, there's a lot in this episode. Come with me as I learn how to become a director sportif. I hope you guys learn as much as I do. And come with me, sit in the back seat as I try and navigate not only myself, but Trekkie through the national championships. And we see what happens out of that. Guys, it's a real experience, this one. I hope you enjoy the ride. Here we go. How to be a DS. Hi, I'm Tom Southern, sports director at EF Easy Post, and I've been a sports director, I think, just uh, just over 10 years now. All right, Tom. Now, you've been on the podcast a couple of years ago. We were talking director sportive. We've got some questions sent in to find out a little bit about the ongoings of what that job entails. Now, we're going back. As you know, I'm lining up to be a sports director on the weekend. bit nervous. I want to ask you a little bit about the history about DSing. I need to know the backstory. Where it's all come from? Why did riders suddenly need a car behind? Was it the same back then? Let's get into a bit of the history. I guess, firstly, where did the name come from, Director Sportive? Is that a cycling term? Is it a general term? Uh, I think it's attributed to cycling. Um, and it comes, I mean, like like a lot of the terms, like soigneur and so on and so forth, comes from the original French. These days, it, it is being sort of bastardized to be the sports director. Even now, I refer to myself as a sports director instead of a Director Sportive. An SD. Exactly, but SD doesn't work. A D, like we still say DS, but we also say sports director, which is kind of weird. So yeah, it goes back to in the early days, I think the early, early days of the tour and stuff, it was just the car behind, you know, just yeah. with material support because the riders used to find their own sponsors and they'd be sponsored individually or they'd ride for national teams. As things sort of changed in the 60s and it sort of became um, more sponsors came in from outside of cycling, then you got these manager types who... I guess they weren't really sports directors, but they ran the whole show. The team, they drove behind. They didn't do mechanics, though, did they? No, 
but they were the guys who, you know, they would organize the hotels, they would find the sponsors. They were like larger than life figures. I'm thinking about Raphael Geminiani, and I think I got that right, who was Ongatil's, like very famously was his sports director, and he was the one who teed up that whole Dauphiné to Bordeaux Paris oh, thing as like yeah, a stunt. Right. So it's like these guys who, they became big characters in their own right. And then it sort of morphed, I think, into the 80s and 90s. They stayed in that sort of position, but obviously they got assistant sports directors on board. I, I think, you know, if, if you go back, I'm not sure about this, but if you look at pro teams from the 70s, it was still only 15 or 12 mm. riders. It was rare that they had a really big squad with a deep squad that was racing all across the world with different nationalities. So you got one sports director who's the boss and then an assistant sports director maybe, or maybe two. So it was a lot of work for one guy, but they were in control of mm. absolutely everything. Yeah, like, and then so I feel like it's not that long ago because I remember talking to Jonathan Vorders and when he started Slipstream, um, he was still jumping in the car as well, you know, in the early days. So this is not that long ago. This was still a bit of a crossover. I'm not saying it was in like that in every team, but some teams that had maybe a smaller budget or the managers had a bit of a, a mind in running in the races as well as the management side. They were doing a bit of both. It's not that far long ago that we had a bit of crossover, was it? Absolutely. I, so JV was, you know, Paris Bay 2011. He was in the team car, you know, um, and he was also the guy who was finding, you know, getting Garmin on as a sponsor or getting whoever on as a sponsor at the same time, sitting in board meetings and then sitting in a in a team car. Bruce Neal, another mm. another good example with Armstrong. You know, he was very much hands on with everything. But I think definitely that era that was sort of maybe the very tail end of that era. And now people like myself, the guys that are currently working, are in a different role. We don't have to do all that higher level stuff mm. we just are there to manage the team and the staff on the road it's almost like we're look i can only speak from the writer's point of view it's almost like where writing's gone we've seen this much more specificity with the writers okay you have to really train before you get to the race ready to race day one that sounds very funny for everyone listening right you have to be ready to race day one i can even think back early in my career when i was racing you got to races and you trained through some races and then you got fit for the races you needed to be good at. Now, every single race you've got to be good at. Every rider is doing every session so specific. Now, it goes into the staff. We've got extra staff. We've got chiropractors. We've got, you know, sports psychologists. Everything, everything's gone up a level. And in, in turn, the sports directors are more specific and there's more of them. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think this is true across all sports. You know, if you look at how many support staff there are in every sport, as the demands of all sports is get, getting higher and higher, it means that the margins are smaller, much smaller, you know, for mistakes or uh, not being looked after in a certain way. And so every role becomes more specific. I mean, we had our training camp, full team training camp a couple of weeks ago in Spain. And we had about, let's say, 150 people there with the riders, I think. And uh, amusingly... Amador turned up and said from Ineos, he's like, oh, it's nice to come to such a small training camp. <laughs> <laughs> There's staff on staff and staff. You know, it, it, it will keep expanding, I think. Thinking back from the old days and now being a director in the modern times, can you see what are the major differences of the job, the actual details of the job specifically? You know, like you said, there was a jack of all trades, but specifically, if you can sort of split the two differences what are the main differences everyone thinking out there or even me now what have i got to sort of get my head around okay i'll break it into two parts one part i would say is the fact that back in the day i've got no idea how they had any idea what was actually happening in the race <laughs> because even now with radios and tv and gcn and apps and this and that you don't even have to drive the car you can be looking at all this information 
you're still behind the eight ball a lot of the time. And you'll know as well as me, like sometimes the info from the DS is just like a little bit out of step with what's really happening. So you imagine in, you know, you're driving along in an open top car in the 60s with the wind blowing everywhere, <laughs> you know, no shirt on. You know, there's guys 15 minutes down the road, you've got, no, you've got zero idea what's really happening and no way to talk to them. So that's, that's changed a lot because there is a lot, much more information. You have to, having to make decisions much faster and those decisions have a m much more impact on what's happening. I think back in the day, it was kind of about your image and mm. just pushing guys to do stuff and then they would, the race would break up and maybe you'd get behind them and shout at them a bit, you know. I think it's harder now to have sort of, not knowledge, information that, that the riders who are coming to your team don't have access to so now a junior basically feels mm -hmm. like they know everything right so it used to be like when i was a rider i felt like when i got to a pro level ds it's like this guy's going to have tools extra, that you don't have and extra information and yeah. this and that but now i get a lot of get a lot of riders and it's not necessarily an arrogance thing but it's like i oh, know i know that or like my coach has already told me this or you know oh, i'm going to do it this way because this way is better and at first, you're like, well, hang on a minute. Do you feel then that you're it, this feeling of being useless? You're like, well, if they know all this stuff, you know, do I have to keep upping it? Or it's more about, okay, you might know that, but I'm going to put a nice sort of angle on what you know with my knowledge as a sports director. It's not about having more knowledge. It's about having the right knowledge. I think in a funny way, it's actually come back almost to being much more of a thing about human beings. Much, much more, which, which then sort of takes it full circle. And actually, okay, everybody has this information. Everybody's that bit smarter. But what you can do if you want to be a good sports director is connect with them on, on a human level to then allow them to get it out of themselves. Put that stuff, you know, the numbers and the training and the boxes and all this stuff that has to happen to be fit aside. And you really dial in then on the psychological aspect. And that's where you can really help. It's funny, yeah, it sounds like exactly what you're saying in the beginning, that's what it was all about because I had no access to that stuff. Yeah. So it was all about the support they gave them probably off the bike afterwards or through the window when they had a five-minute gap or whatever it is, when they could get up there and finally see the race. Then there's this massive middle period where technology was this huge thing where riders didn't weren't up to speed with it and the DSs had time to do that and they would give that knowledge. Suddenly we've got that knowledge now, we're back at the start again where it's just all about that support you do off the bike or through the radio probably now. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, one of the things that you get when you, obviously Nico Portal is a highly respected sports director. And when I, I looked in like a lot of reasons why people thought he was so good, it was all that human connection. And I think that's, that for me was a really interesting point because even in that, even in, you know, the sky of the era, as technological and marginal gains as you can get, actually the figure that stood out the most was the one who was the most human. So I think that's an important aspect, no matter what team you're in, can push things forward. Were there any qualifications back in the day, do you think, you know, and when did that sort of stuff come into it? Because, you know, now we see there's this, you know, the, the UCI has got an actual school, if you want to call it that, or certificate or, you know, education that all directors must go through. When did that even come in or did that, did something exist back in the day? Or if you could just drive a car and then you're allowed to go behind Man, cycling, the Wild West. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know when it came in with the UCI, but I mean, it's it's fairly recent within the last sort of eight, ten years, the qualification, I say that in pretty broad, inverted commas, because the course I did, I've got to be honest, had no relevance to, you know, um, actually being a sports director on the ground. It was great for networking. 
I met mm. some people who were going to do the same job as me. It was interesting. I learned the rules. I could have learned the rules at home. You know, I can read. It cost a fortune to go there and stay in Switzerland for five days. And I would say it was a waste of time because there was no driving component. There was no real time component. I didn't pay for it. The team did. So great. But I, I still think that there is no real actual license for a sports director. I think it's a bit of a joke. So getting on the road was the first day that you really learned how to be a sports director. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, I started in a continental team and at that level, you don't even need a license mm. or at that point you didn't. So, you know, I remember doing a race in the UK, the Lincoln Grand Prix, which is one of the bigger races. And someone's girlfriend was driving a team car and they drew car number one in the lot and she stalled it on the cobbled climb the first time up and the whole convoy was stopped. That was totally unregulated. Now it is, you do have to basically be responsible enough to have gone to uh, the UCI headquarters and spent some money on uh, passing the test. So it's going in the right direction. I mean, it's it's not that hard. If you've been a bike rider and you can drive a car, actually the convoy makes quite a lot of sense mm. quite quickly. And there is no way to replicate that in training. I mean, how do you get, you know, okay, we're going to train the sports directors. We need 150 cyclists who want to ride. Plus we need 20 cars. Plus we're going to go out on the open road for 200k. It doesn't work. I'm Sam Bewley, a recently retired professional cyclist of 13 years or 14 years, something like that. It all blends into one. Uh, now stepping into a new role as a first year sports director with Israel Premier Tech. So about to learn the ropes of a whole new thing. All right, Sam, mate, what was it like? What was the training like? Well, what you got to do actually is spend 1800 euros and <laughs> on a course fee plus hotels and travel. And you've got to go to Switzerland and you've got to spend a week there in a classroom to learn how to drive in a convoy. So it's it's quite an interesting concept, but um, basically you don't get behind the wheel at all. The first time I get behind the wheel will be at the Tour Down Under. So that'll be a baptism of fire. Uh, <laughs> but you, you basically just sit in a classroom for five days and you learn about all the rules and regulations. You even learn about social media and how teams can use that stuff. You learn about really? different, board, different board members in different areas of the UCI, a whole bunch of stuff. And yeah, you've got to pass that at the end of that End of that week, you do a two-hour-long exam, 65 questions, and you've got to get 45 of them right. So I was actually pretty nervous. I thought I took on all the information pretty well, but when I left the exam, and you know, standard like schoolyard mistake, yeah. you, know, you walk out of the exam and you sit down with your mates and you talk about the, the questions, and you're like, I'm going to cock this up. I don't know if I'm going <laughs> to pass this, but thankfully I did. So I got my DS license now, which is valid forever. Don't have to do that again. So now I can kick off, kick off in a, in a, a tour down under for my first race as a DS. What have, what have you learned so far? Like, were there stuff in there that you actually learned or was it all sort of stuff that you knew? No, actually, uh, you know, I sort of take the piss out of it a little bit, but ultimately it was it was a really valid week. Um, mm. Mick Rogers, who a lot of people know, he sort of runs runs that area of the of the UCI. And I sat down with him one night at dinner and I said, you know, there, there were a lot of topics and sort of areas that we learned about that didn't mm. really seem applicable at all to being a sports director. Like, you know, does the UCI post highlights of you know, of races on their social media channels. I can't see how that's really applicable to being a sports director, but ultimately like it was a really important week. <laughs> I still don't know. I, I think I got that one wrong. <laughs> that was one of the questions I got wrong. But um, no, it was really good because you, you learn, you do learn about, you know, the structure of preparing a race, how how you've got to register your team, register your riders, the, the deadlines, the timelines. Most importantly, learned about, you know, international races. So when you're traveling with a team to Australia or to UAE or things like that, I uh, learned about all the processes behind that. And you do learn, you know, you don't get in a car, but you learn about the, 
the convoy etiquette and all these sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. So actually, I, I came out of that week a hell of a lot more knowledgeable than I went into it, and re- really glad I did it. I think it, it definitely is going to going to help when uh, when it comes to you know doing all those sorts of things. So it was a good week. One thing I'm probably not going to have as much as you because, you know, in the Nationals, I didn't race with a whole lot of guys doing the Australian Nationals. You know, there's so many young guys coming through. But you're going to be straight back into the World Tour Peloton. Are you nervous about seeing all your old mates back in the bunch and sort of like this feeling like, oh, I wish I was back out there? You know, like, because for me, I retired, but I didn't touch a World Tour race. I wasn't near one this whole year. Um, so I really distanced myself from that. You're going to be straight back in the action. Are you potentially feeling like, oh, I wish I was back out there? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I'll, I'll be yeah, intrigued to see how I feel about it because, like you say, you sort of gave yourself a, you know, you remained in the, in the sport, but you gave yourself some separation from what you were doing. Whereas I'm not really doing that. I've only had a sort of a three or four month period where I've stepped away from it. And it's all felt all pretty normal because it's been an off season. So mm. it wasn't really any different. And then when the guys started training again, for a, for a period, I sort of was like, oh, I kind of miss going out with the boys. Like, I miss the social side of going for a ride with everybody. But at the training camp we just had here in Girona, actually, I was following following the riders out, training for five hours, six hours. And as much as I was bored in the car at times, she didn't feel like I wanted to be out doing that ride. Yeah. So it's gonna. I, I think I. I don't think I will miss the racing when I when I'm following it. I think I'll be probably pretty excited just to be part of it in a new role and offering experience and from a different side of things. What's something that you think you know? And so you're gonna know this straight away that you know DSs did for you that you liked, and they things that they did for you that you didn't like that you want to try and take on board. And I know probably it's gonna be unrealistic once you become a DS and you know the way that it goes because we've only got the viewers a writer. So you're thinking, why would you do that, you idiot? You know, or vice versa. Why wouldn't you just help me? You know. But there's probably restrictions. But before you even get in there and feel it, what are those things that you've sort of mentally noted to yourself? You go, I'm never going to do that when I'm a DS. Or, you know what, when I'm a DS, I'm definitely going to, you know, create the gap for the guys or go back and motor pace them. And what, I don't know, what are the things that you're thinking? You know, we've both experienced in the past, like bike riders that we've raced with become our DSs. Yeah. And you sort of pick out quite quickly, like, oh, that, that guy's forgotten what it was like to be a bike rider already. They used to always annoy me when you're like mate you used to be a bike rider you were a bike rider for 15 years and you've forgotten what it's like already now you've got this ds boss cap on i've always been like i don't want to do that i want to remember how it was as a bike rider that it's it's not as easy as it as it's supposed to be all the time but i can also see how you fall into the trap of being mm-hmm. like mate we wanted this we expected this from you today and you didn't deliver and you've got to find that line where you where you sort of have to come down on the riders and at times and be like hey mate this is not what we asked of you we need we expected better you have to do that because that's kind of your role but at the same time you you've got to be empathetic to the situation and and why this may or may not have happened so i think you know what i want to do is just be a really well balanced director you know understand how it was as a bike rider that it doesn't always go your way assess the situation speak to the rider about why why that happened and then try as a as a group to come up with a solution or to make an improvement for the next day or the next race or whatever that's kind of how i want to operate as a sports director have you got any advice about that like we dynamic like i remember when exactly what you said teammates of ours became ds's and they i feel like they struggle with that we were friends just like last year and now suddenly i can't really be your mate because i'm your superior that weird dynamic like have you got advice about how to go on that or have you already experienced that yourself where you're like oh i've actually got to tell you now that might be enough boys head off to bed eh? no more beers or something like that i don't know what it's going to be but you know the situation and there's going to come an awkward spot where you're going to be like telling someone what to do when 
just like one year ago, you were just sort of teammates and mates. I, I, I think I've spoken to a few a few guys. What I've kind of learned and spoken to a couple of riders that I know pretty well within the Israel Premier Tech team, and it's kind of clear that they res- they actually respect a bit of authority. As long as you are empathetic and you understand the situations and you have and you sit down and invest in conversations with them and communicate about scenarios with them, bike riders actually respect a bit of authority. You know, they mm. they they don't want to they don't want a, a sports director that's soft and lets you get away with everything. You know, certainly the, the upper management of the team don't want that either. So you know, you just like I say, walk that line of being empathetic, understanding. They will respect the fact that a guy can say, no, actually, look, mate, I'm going to pull you up on that. That was bullshit. Um, and but let's as a as a group discuss how we can improve that. I think that's that's the way to do it, and I think that's the way to gain respect with with amongst the riders as well. Have you been able to sort of feel like, you know, what are you most excited about, you know, stepping into the to this role? I think what I'm most excited about is what I kind of feel like I'll naturally be quite good at is just communicating and talking with people, talking with the riders. You know, like that's kind of what I've always enjoyed doing anyway in like more of a natural way than a forced way. Like, you know, talking with young riders, you know, sometimes it's you're in a room with a young dude at the classics or something and you just have conversations with them in the evening about, you know, tomorrow's Tour of Flanders, mm-hmm. I know you're nervous, but like, rah, 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 and you can sort of help guide them through that stuff. You know, as a sports director, you're always going to go to races with a mixed group of riders. Sometimes you're going to have, you know, for example, at Tour Down Under, you're going to have Chris Froome and Daryl Limpy there. They don't need to be taught. They, you know, they know everything. They're super experienced. And But then you're also going to get a mix of young up-and-coming guys who actually look up to you and they look up to the older riders and they mm-hmm. want to learn and they're interested in, in everything you've got to say, you know, without sounding arrogant or cocky, I feel like I'm quite good at that naturally. So I'm really excited about working with, with the young guys and, and all of the guys actually, and just offering perspective and having calm conversations with them and, you know, listen to their ideas, sharing my ideas and, and, and coming up with a collective strategy in some, in some cases. And um, that's, that's what I'm most excited about. I don't know if I'm maybe I'll really enjoy driving in the convoy. I, pro- I probably will in some, in some cases when it's, you know, but, adrenaline rush and stuff but probably more apprehensive and nervous about that initially because i haven't done it before but i am really you know i've been preparing to it down under the last couple of weeks and i'm really enjoying having conversations and calling the guys and saying okay what do you want to achieve from down under this is what we want mm. from you how can we how can we meet this goal you know and motivating the guys i really enjoy motivating people so that's that's actually what i'm most excited about and really looking forward to doing you know as a full-time job in some ways now that meeting the night before, you know, or the day of, or whatever it is in a specific race, there is a there is a team meeting we have, and it's more like a brief. As a rider, you sort of take a bit for granted what work goes into that. Oh yeah, they're just reading from the race book and sort of you know whatever, but it's a bit of work, isn't it? I had a meeting with the riders actually, the down under group at at uh, the training camp a couple of weeks ago. Like I was a little bit nervous initially, but I kind of felt again like I sort of slipped into that role quite naturally. I've and I've got a few mentors and the good friends of mine that have you know become sports directors and they've kind of mentored me through this process a bit. Uh, so I've been leaning on them a lot. There's a lot of preparation that goes into races, especially in the modern day cycling because you know 10 years ago the roadbook was actually your only piece of information mm. whereas now you have valo viewer uh you have gpx files you have all these sorts of things it takes a long time like i started preparing till down under essentially first of december so six weeks before the race basically going through every single stage of valo viewer having a look at google maps looking for dangerous corners or important important um run-ins into climbs or things like that and you've actually got to prepare all that stuff and put all these little markers and in, in valo viewer because when for those who don't know valo viewer we have a 
on the screen on an iPad in the car and tracks where you are on the course and you can use that information to tell the riders that something's coming up. So it is a lot of preparation, stage by stage, you know, and then you, you use all that information to create a strategy as well. Ultimately, as a sports director on on site at, on the, at the race, it's kind of up to you to, to run the strategy. Mm. Uh, but again, it's it's that's a new thing for me as well. So it's been good to be able to lean on some people on the team about that and, and lean on the right. And that's where it's important to communicate with the riders as well. And so this is what we think you can do. What do you think you can do? Where are you at with your training? Talk to the coaches. So when you go to the race, you have a really good idea about how everybody's going. And then you back yourself that you're prepared to race with all the information that you can. But again, being a bike rider, I feel like you've been in a part of that stuff in some way mm. over the years. So you just got to kind of transfer it across what's one thing that you you know one thing that you sort of underestimated or you know overlooked now sort of unraveling and i know you haven't done a race yet but just going oh i've got so much more respect for you guys ds's because you know many times we don't have that much respect for the ds what's one thing now where you sort of ah i probably should have shown a bit more respect to the ds's yeah the preparation stuff is a lot more than than i thought it would be yeah. So a lot, a lot goes into preparing a race. You know, with Down Under, I've, I've had time to prepare it because it's it's the first race of the season. But once the season gets going, you you go from race to race to race. Like you could have only one week between a race. The preparation that goes into that, it's like that's a lot of work to squeeze into one week if you've only got one week. It seems okay with Down Under because I can kind of spread it out across six weeks. Uh, and then like you kind of th- sometimes you know used to get annoyed as a rider. Like I haven't even heard from my sports director. Like I don't even open race programs <laughs> or you know like. That I want to like have communication with this guy every day, but like a lot of those guys, especially the head sports directors, they're trying to communicate with twenty-eight bike riders. Like it's a lot of yeah. it's a lot of things to do, and a lot of work goes into it. A lot of hours every day with preparation, calling riders. So I sort of have that respect for. Oh, okay, this sports director said he was going to call me on Wednesday, and he called me he called me on Thursday. I can kind of understand now how that might have happened. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah, that that stuff you kind of you got to kind of manage the best you can as well. I'm Zach Dempstar from yeah Central Victoria. I've been living in Europe since 2007. I raced until 2019 professionally, and I've been a sport director for for three years now with Israel, and just transitioned to a, a new DS role with with Team Ineos. All right, Demers, you got to tell me, mate, because we were riding together in the peloton. We rode together before the peloton, the, the pro peloton. We rode back in in Victoria. Tell me a little bit about what it was like transitioning. You know, what changed with the relationships? Because one second you're a writer and the next second you're a director sportive. You know, even the guys in the team would be different, but also your friends. How did things change that sort of that, that change over, you know, from year to year? You know, I, I was transitioning from, from writing for Israel at the time to a, to a role with the same team, right? So if you're coming in as a, a new sport director, it's a, it's a completely different kettle of fish i would say so as you say you know like i was a teammate and then i went to to being a sport director i was kind of lucky that i had the time to manage more of the the continental project at the start before i i did the volta spania or anything like that it gave me time to build my credibility that i was organized and serious and i wasn't just you know a director that was you know rolling into the races unprepared or an ex-pro that still thought he was a pro so yeah having that time to to build that that credibility that you've got a good way of working really helped me because i feel like there are situations when you can just kind of roll up and still think you're a rider. Well, that, that's a massive dynamic, you know, because like as a rider, you think, 
only about yourself. You have to think about yourself. You've got to be selfish. It's all about you. You know, no one else is thinking about you. And then the next year, you've got to flip the switch and be like, it doesn't matter about me. I've got to think about all these other guys. What's that dynamic like? And have you noticed that transition now where you don't think about yourself anymore? Yeah, I think the I got some really good advice and was lucky enough to have some good mentors during that that transition. And, and the advice, the most important advice I got was understanding the role of each staff member. You know, how what they do can affect other groups within the staff. So as I said, you know, managing a smaller project like with two Swannies and two mechanics and, and you're there, you really see hands-on what can be the pinch points. For example, you know, uh, washing the car or filling up the car with petrol, you know, whereas, yeah, if the mechanics are uh, full tilt and the Swannies are full tilt, things like that when you've got a spare half an hour make it make a huge difference so to be honest as a rider like you say you're so focused on yourself and your own performance that there's not a lot of empathy <laughs> in what you do and i think mm. when you learn that what actually the staff are doing you really have to learn that empathy and i think being a good director is that you know being being in the trenches with the guys which part of that is the riders um mm. but definitely it is the the staff group equally as important or how quickly did you actually forget what it was like to race? That's something we always said when we're out racing. Oh, God, this DS, you know, he's forgotten what it's actually like to race, you know, calling, you know, actual climbs, rollers, and, you know, what happened on that last, you know, that section back there? You're like, mate, have you forgotten what it was actually like to race? How quickly have you forgotten what it's like to race? Or are you still trying to remember what these guys are going through out there when it's raining and you just roll the window up or when it's hot, you just turn the air conditioning on? <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah. For example, on those really hard days, you know, like I don't miss racing. I think a lot of guys finish and they kind of miss that racing, whereas I, I don't, to be honest, because I've got this competitive outlet. And on those really shitty days, I really don't miss racing, you know. So, yeah, reminding yourself why you really don't miss it and how hard it is. But, <laughs> you know, yeah, same thing, having that empathy to say, okay, but what are we here to do, you know? Are we prepared for this? Ensuring that all those things are, are taken care of, um, if it's the cold protocol, heat protocol or whatever, makes that difference. Whether I've forgotten what it was like to race, I wouldn't say so. I think I've got a pretty decent amount of empathy. And if, if things haven't gone wrong, right, I still feel like I've got a pretty good understanding. Maybe maybe the riders will say something different. Did the riders treat you any differently? You know, like even just your friends not in your team. You know, me exactly. You know, we're, we're mates and suddenly you were a DS from one year to the next. Did I treat you differently? Did our friends around our friendship group who were still pros, suddenly you weren't a rider anymore, you were a DS. Did you feel any difference a little bit yeah i think it is yeah in a fantasy world you're like no, no it's definitely not different and all that stuff but it, it kind of has to be different i i believe especially in the riders you know like if you both you know got you both aligned your values and you and you're good people of course you can still be mates and have you know definitely with for example a guy like woodsy or or ems they we have like let's say we're a conversation where we're we're really focused and, and disciplined on on what we're doing where we're guiding but at the same time you know you, you're asking those guys about you know How's it with the kids? When are you going back to home? When are you going to see your parents next? Or, it's, you know, checking in with them on a human level is really important. So definitely it is different. I think you're not, yeah, you're not definitely trying not to have 35 beers on the Gerondo, for example. Mm. Um, all the time now, especially with younger guys. And that's that's something now that I think will come um, more into play with just, yeah, getting older, I, I guess. Yeah, in terms of the friendship group, probably not.
Hello, I'm Gregory Last. I'm from Switzerland. I was a crew rider uh, for 17 years, several teams, but mostly with Trek sponsor team. I started my fifth year as a sport director now with Trek Sega Fredo. Rusty, mate, I really want to have a talk to you before I get a chance to be a director sportive or even just a little bit. I'm not even going to call myself a director, but I'm going to get a little taste of it and I need to get some advice. Firstly, let's talk about you. How did you become a director? Because as you know, when you're a writer, you look at these guys and you think, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I can be a director. That just seems too full on. It's us versus them. Or did you always want to be a director? I think uh, every the, every director you ask now have a different story. But with me, it was like this. I um, During the Classics 2018, I went to my boss, Luca Guercilena, and I asked him uh, for a contract extension as a writer. And then he told me, uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe we can arrange something. But actually, I really would like to have you as a sport director. Huh. I was uh, surprised and I was like, no, no, for sure. I want to write one more year. Then I went back to the room there in Brugge and I was like, should I be a writer or uh, should I be a director next year? Uh, because honestly, I didn't have a, a big of a clue what I want to do after cycling at this point. Yeah. And of course, this is the question every every rider has asked himself what he wanted to do when he's finished. Mm. And I was really like, well, it's a nice, a really nice option. And in the, in the first moment, I was not so happy because I want to be a rider, like I said. And then uh, <laughs> I slept one night over it. And then I, I was like, okay, doesn't change. I'm, I'm really getting old. I was 38 at the time. Doesn't change anything if I'm a rider anymore, I guess. So uh, then I I sleep one night and I say to Luke, okay, I would... Uh, like to be a director and i would like to try it it's a bit of a it's a bit of an honor you know to be asked like that it's not like you went asking for it and when when he said to you i think i'd like you to be a director you sort of almost have to take a bit of a feather in your cap that you go well i'm being actually selected here is that the way it felt for you yeah i mean it was a, it was a very good talk with him and selection but the one thing i always remember and i will always remember was he said that uh, you know big riders they are not good directors <laughs> <laughs> of course this i know already before but then i had it uh, from him also i was not a big rider uh, i mean i think it's it maybe helps when you when you had the, a lot of bad days on the bike and <laughs> a couple of very good days so a little bit of a mix i think this makes it easier as a, a director to direct the group of riders you will get and uh, uh, like I was long in the business I was working with riding with big champions and of course a lot of domestiques like I was so I think that this makes uh, this could make a good director that he, he saw basically everything of the of the time one thing I'm always critical about directors is I feel like they forget what it was like to be a rider you know they tell you yeah we're just going over some rollers and they're two or three kilometer climbs and you know it's not too far to the top when it's 3k to go something like that I'm thinking how quickly do you forget what it's like to race it's good I, uh, I mean I still ride my bike and I really don't forget how it is because <laughs> I'm actually terrible at the, on the bike right now Phil <laughs> And then I think you feel you still know when you talk about the 1K climb. It uh, it's really it can uh, you can drop on a 1K climb. Mm -hmm. I also try to take out what directors tell me during my career. And I remember one particular day when uh, when I was uh, in the breakaway in the Tour de Suisse, and the breakaway went to the finish, but it was a hard finish, and I dropped 20Ks to go on a small climb. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I dropped because. My director at this time was a 
Popov, Jaroslav mm. Popovic, and he said, it's only one K. <laughs> and I said, okay, I can't do it. One, I can't do this one K anymore. And I dropped. And I'm really careful with what I'm saying because there is riders in the in the in your group. For them, one K is nothing, and for others, is a big mountain. I never forgot. And also with training before the race in bad weather or uh, recons of a TTT, we had a situation one time, and I don't want to send them out during rain and things like this i think i i didn't forget about it how is that transition that dynamic and you said that there i don't want to send them out in the rain because you know yourself but the riders and they're sort of like your friends and they're also like your your colleagues you guys you race with and and then the next year or the following years you're suddenly like their boss now was that a hard dynamic um after you've been a teammate with a guy and the next year you're telling him mate out you go go out and do the effort in the rain there is also two sides of that and i think the ba- the biggest advantage is when you come straight from from the bike to the car is that you know all the riders perfect and i think this is something sam with uh, israel now he, he have a big advantage because he know which rider is able to do what and what and what because after the race as many times the rider comes to you and tell you uh, i did this i did that but you don't know but now when you're coming straight out from the bike you know every rider uh what he can do so you know where you can use him better downside is really what you say my first year's welt we was there and uh we had two sprinters there and they are two two friends and you need to make decisions and you know how the sprinters are mm-hmm. they don't like to do lead outs when they think they can do the, do the sprint by themselves and to tell a rider which is also your friend uh today we go for this guy is not always easy but i think yeah in the end it's a decision you you need to take because if you don't take a decision it's uh, you finish five and six and there's also nobody wants how long can you see yourself doing this job realistically like how taxing is it on your life your family i see what it was like as a rider you feel like you do you know 80 days a year that's a lot but i feel like the ds's do a lot more days there's a lot more time at home on the computer i don't really know how taxing is it on your life or is it easier than riding no i told to you but i, I will be a dad in uh in a month or so and then i think it's a bit more difficult now because so far i was just uh, my girlfriend and me and when i'm home i mean it's it's the it's the dream mm. you you don't need to train like as a rider it's true you're still having a lot of days on the road and in our team now we do always three directors on a big tour in the past was two so that means each director need to do two grand tours a year for me it was a bit uh, not difficult but it's a job personally as a rider i never like grand tours <laughs> anyway you are months you are a month home from uh you're a month home uh, away from home and uh, now uh, you go at least two times a year on a grand tour and this is not not easy but i say the time you're home so far is quite okay you have a lot of computer work to do but now just when i see when i when we get the baby i think the time i'm home i can mm-hmm. take care a lot of the baby and spend a lot of time together but the downside is you are one month at the chiro after the six week when the baby is six weeks so that's that's okay but i think in channel it's a it's a good job and i uh, i i really like it and i think this is the most like in every job when you like it you you will find a way uh, to manage everything and you can do it quite long what about the day-to-day when you're on the race um you know what i see is just you guys coming in giving me that little report but i don't see what happens outside of the race you know it, they're big days i think 
like you spoke about being on a grand tour when you come home are you completely exhausted like you just rode the race how taxing is it day to day when you're on the race can be really exhausting most of the time i mean the start is mostly at the lunch lunch time so i wake up at eight and uh then I still, I go again over the parkour. You need to organize a couple of things every day. Some things maybe you, you don't know, but then it will be there. You need to organize and then you do the race. You, when you drive yourself, you need to be really focused for the four or five hours. It's, you need to be there. And then after the race, uh, you need to organize the daily plan immediately for the next days. And uh, we go to talk with all our riders every day and depends on the rider, uh, there is riders they don't want to talk. They feel it immediately. You talk with him five minutes, and there is all the riders. You need to spend the half an hour, and you have seven riders, so you spend another hour there. And then mostly, if the time is already lunch, uh, dinner time, you, you you speak with the riders. You speak with the staff. Everything went well. You explain them what's the plan for tomorrow, and then it's already uh, dinner time. In your mind, without naming names, just in general. What makes a good director and what makes a bad director? The certain things that you think. A good director is like, especially in these days, in the past, I mean, I'm, I'm really feel for these directors in the past because we have uh, Google Maps, we have uh, we have the Veloviewer. I mean, it's awesome now. It's the first day, first year we're working with Veloviewer now. Makes it so easy, but to, with the with the wind apps and all this stuff, you you need to put the time in it. But in the past, I don't know how they did it. Kim Anderson sometimes is still there with an old roadmap, uh, and he shows we go here and here is open the wind. And this is you need to have a lot of experience to do this with the map. And today, uh, you you put on the app on the computer, but still you need to have a, a lot of time to to pre- prepare a parkour every day, especially when it's windy. When it's not so windy, okay, then mostly it's a road and you say, okay, it's a big road or it's a small road. With When you think about, and I would think these two, different directors have certain specialities. You know, one guy's really good with the riders, another guy's really good with the technology. What do you see yourself as? What's your speciality? What's something that you feel like you bring to the table? Apart from the other things, but you one thing that you bring extra. I think I really see see the rider how it is and how uh, how is what he what he can do. And I think I have a, you know the big riders. They are really like for them it's easy. You know they they win they will win a race and they are good and this and that. But with so domestiques, I think I see there when when a rider is doing an awesome job. It's just he he's doing something special. I have a basically a really good connection with with all the riders and I take them as he is you know when a rider is is not so talented and he is like sometimes i mean sometimes he's a shit rider no it's not a shit rider it's just his he's there and not everybody can be a champion mm. this you need to see and i think there is sport directors they are like to be like uh, the big rider i'm the sport director of this one and i'm the sport director of this one and i think i'm not the sport director of uh Julio Ciccone, just because he did the great race last week, I'm sport director of the team, Trek Segafredo, and in this moment it's 29 riders. And I think you, I, I try to take everyone how he is and how his speciality is and uh, what is his, uh, how, what is his uh, limits. The connection, it's, it's more than that. It's about the connection, having that connection with the rider and understanding. I think that's what, if I had to be a full-time director, that would be something I would really be interested in. And the tech, I'd probably struggle with all the velo viewers and the wind and all this sort of stuff. But that's a big part of it. I guess the question is for you, what are the good bits of being a director? 
for me, it's like when I stopped, I was like the travel I, I will not miss. I hate the travel. I really hate it. The plane to the left and right and was so complicated and that. But the, there is more plus in my my case. I, I, the travel is okay, but to be still around this mostly young people and work with younger people and really you can as a sport director i really think you can change a rider when you take care of him you can you can uh, help him to be a, a solid rider to do his job at the right moment to put the team together this is what i really like and and the, and the shit bits are the travel and the, and the time on the road i guess i mean this is a, maybe easier when he was a, as long as a pro some say okay i I don't want to have this anymore. And uh, for me, it was like, okay, this is a small down part to, to travel and to be not home. I know I basically did nothing else in my life. So that's, that's, I mean, it's there, but it's not so bad. And I'm, I mean, this is like uh, what I always say, look, you're Aussies or Americans. Uh, you are all, all basically all the year away from home. And I'm, it's complaining on a on a high level because actually I go one month and I'm immediately home. Mm. For for uh, you guys, it was mostly okay. I go back to Chirona or wherever you you live. So for it's not a it's not a big thing and that doesn't bother me too much anymore. Hi, Brett Lancaster. I was sports director for seven years with Sky. Then over to Ineos. All right, let's go right back. back to the beginning, Brett. Why did you ever want to be a director sportive? How did you become a director? You know, you're a pro cyclist, and then suddenly now you're a director. How does that transition happen? Quite interesting how it did happen, Mitch. I, um, I, I'd finish up my pro career, or I, I was deciding whether to do another year or not. Actually, I was up with you in Andorra at the time, if you remember, and, um, you know, sort of struggling with it a bit in the last years of pro, not really enjoying it too too much and then uh you know there was an offer with another team but i went to a wedding richie port's wedding actually and i got talking to uh tim kerrison and a couple others uh rod illingsworth was there and and then eventually um they said oh, we've been looking for some directors you know mm. and i said yeah it was actually something i'd like to go into i sort of popped up and sent my resume in and talked to dave brailsford etc and uh went to mallorca camp and did a little bit of a trial and by the end fran miller came up to me and said You've got the job. So that's how it all started, mate. Was it something that you thought you might want to do as a pro? Like when you were riding, you thought that job was interesting? 100%. But I think the thing is, mate, that, you know, when when you've been living in Europe so long and you have a family like you did as well, you're already starting to think about moving to to Australia and those steps. Um, so it was a big decision to take it on. And it, it was never meant to last seven years. But in the end, it, it was that. and But it was time to finish up. But yeah, that, that's how it all just panned out, mate. The first years, compared to the later years as director, if you can think back to those first years, how does it change when you first start as a director, you're fresh out of the peloton as a pro, so you're really in tune to the riders, I guess. Um, you're also in tune to what it feels like to be a rider, but you're very novice at directing it, being a director sportive. Compare that to later on in, in the job, you know, seven years later, can you remember the differences in the transition over those years? What are the things that changed? I was very, very nervous, especially going into a big team, like the biggest team in the world that were winning Tour de France's year after year. Stepping into the environment was stressful and, and nerve-wracking. I've got to say, though, um, you know, the team made me feel very lax. Dave Brailsford is like, just be yourself in my first meetings which you try to be as much yourself in life anyway, and I think that that does work. To, you know, like the first year, second director light, second car, 
I don't think I was first DS uh, until Potisseron, a bit later in the year with Nicholas Portel. He really showed me the ropes. And then moving on after that, you know, you become more stable in your job, you learn the job, you become more confident with the bus presentations and, you know, the way you talk to staff and athletes, etc. You move on and you build your way up, um, being a director in the Tour de France this year. So it did take a while. And at the start, I didn't really ever want that. Um, maybe I didn't want the pressure. Oh, in the end, you know, it was actually a, a goal and uh, we ticked that goal last year. Do you remember at the end of your being a director and, you know, sort of different as like a pro, like when you start as a, a young pro, you know, you focus on different things. You focus on, you know, finishing the race or just trying to do something. At the end of your career, that doesn't really, you don't need to finish another race just to finish it. You're more focused on, you know, doing your job perfectly or trying to win a race or whatever it is. And as a director... I guess that would sort of be the same at the start. You're trying to, you know, maybe just drive in the convoy correctly, but by the end of that, driving in the convoy is really easy. So you're focusing on the instructions you're giving, all the bus presentations. What sort of changed as well in that sort of stuff? The dynamics of the way you approached it. I think um, in the end, you're sort of being a pro. You're a lot self-centered and and self-focused on mm. on being, you know, making you know making good for yourself or or think about yourself too much <laughs> and then you eventually mature in the job and i think by the end you're, you're well well after a couple of years really looking into athlete welfare to be and looking after the athlete and thinking you know what what would if you were in those shoes you know because you know as you know mitch everyone's so different um you got all different types of guys some are workers some are the winners you know and it's concentrating on and making them the best so when they get on the start line they're feeling they well to start with they need to know what the plan is and you need mm. to execute it etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know make sure they they're in a good place or know where they are yeah so when you start out you're sort of still thinking like a pro rider you're still thinking about yourself really but by the end you're actually a proper director you're thinking about the whole team you're thinking about the rider's well-being yeah, and I mean, and in the end, oh, after a couple of years, you're thinking about a whole group dy- dynamic. So when you go on the road, that you're talking to your carers, you're talking to your mechanics, you're talking to your psychologists, you're talking to your doctors, and you're all in tune before you go to that race and make sure you have the best environment possible when you're, when you're at that race. And, you know, you've you got to know all your carers, family names, kids. You've got to get personal. And if you can create that happy mm. environment where people can have fun, but they're also, you know, executing their work very well, that's the most important thing. If you it does brush off, if you feel stir, if you're an asshole mate to your staff and they don't like you, um, for sure some people don't like you, but you try and be as good as you can. That'll rub off in a massage. You know, mm. a care or a swanee could be giving a rider a massage and they could be talking bad about you, and then yeah, it just creates a bad environment. So it's, it, I found it really important just to create that perfect environment. Well, as good as you can, for absolutely everyone on the race. What are the good bits you think as a day-to-day sort of thing? What are the what are the nice bits about being a director? Is it you know driving that car fast down to descent? Is it coming into the bus when there's a victory, or just hanging out with the team after a solid day, or being on tour? I don't know what it is. What are the actual good bits of being a DS, mate? It's um you know being an ex-athlete yourself. You've been involved in this team environment your whole life, and that is the best thing. Like you can't beat that feeling. For myself, you know, I was I always liked the team events more going way back to when I rode the team pursuit, you know, victory sharing with someone else, having a champagne afterwards, you know, with the proceeds, we, we did get a lot of wins in, in, in Sky and Ineos, so it was the nights and you'd go around and you'd, you know, that, that vibe um, of, of having a win, yeah, you, you can't beat that, mate. Well, on the flip side, what are the bad bits? What are the worst bits of being a DS? 
The travel, uh, mm. time away from your family. It's unavoidable. Yeah, actually, the COVID time was pretty good for us and, and you were over there. Then we got a free pass to travel and empty airports. But then, you know, you just get an absolute gut full of it. Airports, delayed flights, uh, time in the car. We spend, as you know, endless amount of hours in that car and then you're in a bus afterwards. And then you're doing all your post-race debriefs, seeing the riders and reports. And, you know, and then you're in bed at, you know, 12, 1 o'clock and little, little sleep. Uh, so that's that's not going to be missed, that side of things, Mitch. Struggle and also struggle to keep yourself fit at, at all of that. And, you know, you see we're an ex-athlete, so we still want to do something. Yeah, and um, definitely I suffered from that a bit. Um, you know, I do a bit of running, and I, that's the only way I could keep the weight off a bit. Mm. And I had I had like a cycle in my DS career. I'd um, get to the winter, the months you're at home, and exercise like nothing else, and then drop a lot of kilos. Season start, and sometimes, you know, if you get, if you've got a 5K run, run in, you'll be happy. Because you wake up a lot of mornings and you're dead tired. What's the last thing you want to do is run. <laughs> Go running. Yeah. But if you could pull your shoes on and get out for a, for a little tickle. Um, you'd feel good. You'd feel good, mate. So a definite bet downside of it. With with DSing, it's it's like a like a poker game at times. And mm. my good friend, colleague, uh, Nicolas Portel, he, when he was winning the Tour de France, you know you know what the lineup was like with your domestics as your Richie Ports and, you know, so in the best riders in the world, and Chris Froome in good form. It was a bit different. You know, he didn't talk to any other DSs. Not any, but he rarely talked to them and just said, okay, we get on the front now with with whoever, Ian Stannard or whoever it was at the time. Where I would, um, I was pretty friendly with all the other DSs and I found it really a good thing to be friends, but then at the same time, they knew by the time in the last few years of my DSing that I was very stubborn or if I had my way, mm-hmm. if they wanted me to put someone up to, to do a turn or work for their benefit, I'd just say no. And you always you've got to be really careful because you know the next day you might need them, and yeah. and that was that was interesting thing about DSing, and uh, you know it, it did take time to get cred. I remember working walking to some of my first you know DS meetings, and there's these old arrogant guys who are like you know who's this young DS on the scene, and and I do remember you know there was there was good guys you know Kim Andersons, yeah. uh, he's been doing it for years, still does it now, and he was nice to talk to, shook my hand, and said welcome to the DS world, and mm. but there was one. There was DSs that probably felt threatened that you're in their space then. Being in Sky at the time, mate, it was... Some people thought there was this arrogance about the team, but I was never like that. And I found it difficult, especially with a lot of the French directors, because at the time they didn't like the team. And you'd come in and look at you and look you up and down. And I found it quite hard. I'm hard to be accepted. person. Yeah. Like if I've got a label that says Sky. And and you know what? I think by the end I, I finished, um, you know, shaking all these guys' hand and, and them appreciating me being around and, and, and changing that whole persona. I don't know about that um, the way that Sky was or Ineos. It sounds like it was how the Peloton was... A bit like when you were going through pro and at the, the very start of my career, this sort of earning your stripes and this sort of getting respect and, um, you know, people people need to see you do the job before they earn, you earn their respect. Um, how were you on the flip side when you were then becoming one of the senior guys and you saw new directors come in? Were you sort of like trying to welcome them in or were you a bit like, you know, you still need to prove yourself in the convoy? No, I'd always, it's just who I am as a person, always welcome people and shake their hand. Um, I'd be more like, look at their little mistakes they were making in the mm-hmm. car and you'd sit, I'd just sit back and say to the mechanic, you know, these mechanics have been around for, for years, so you'd have a little giggle about them, you know, panicking and yeah. they all drive too fast, way too fast at the start and I did too. Um, well, because you think you have to or because yeah, you can? You think a bit of both. I think, you know, if you're a bit of an ex-bike rider, we always like to go fast, you know. Yeah. And the other thing was, you know, I've got to be there. But 
I, I never one one thing I never did, um, and I always I saw it, and I, I saw um, a lady get killed in the Tour de France in front of my own eyes one year. Was speed through towns, and mm-hmm. it's something that really really cracked me as a DS. That DS has thought that bike race was more important than a child's life because I've seen it. And I've, you know, kids jump out to try grab some of the merchandise they throw out, and you just slow down. At the end of the day, Mitch, it's just a bike race, yeah. and um, so yeah, that that's with my stance on that. And I'd I'd actually have a go at some directors and just say pull up or ease up it's slower what happens back in the convoy with the fights between the ds's and stuff is it like literally verbal or you know because i know road rage myself on the roads just driving in the streets it comes past when you know people want to brake check you put their brakes on in front of you or come right up behind you and this is probably small i guess child's play in the, in the ds world what happens back there to be honest it's nothing it's exactly the same as being on the bike you know you'll have a nice race like Tour Down Under at the start of the year. It's cruising in the car, big wide roads. You do Tour of California, these big Yankee roads laid back, and then you get the Tour of Flanders, mm. and then it's on for young and old. It's best man wins into that corner. <laughs> it's exactly the same really? as the bike, yeah. And you got to have friends, same as same yeah. as in the classics. Yeah, you got to have some Belgian friends and give them the, you know, the, yeah. the top lip goes up, <laughs> and you're yeah, in the DS meeting and bit bit nice with them. And because if not, you, you'll miss her. There'll be a puncher. And if you're already in your spot, then whatever car you got, you could get caught two minutes behind. Like yeah. Roubaix, I've I've punctured the car before DSE, you know. Really? Yeah. And it was at the sector before the Arenberg, you know, the one. Yeah, Wallace. Yeah. yeah. So, and fortunately, we had an extra feed with one, the same vehicle there, just without bikes on the roof. Uh, I had Service Carnarvon with me at the time. He you know, obviously won the race, absolutely legend and great guy to work with. We finished the sector and... He's like, oh, we can just drive to the next sector of the Arenberg. I said, mate, if we drive this this car with this flat over the Arenberg, the rim will be destroyed. So anyway, I've talked to him and we pulled over. We did a record change. We actually had it on the GoPro. Put all the bikes on and I was back onto the back of them by the end of the Arenberg. Wow. So that Jeez. was pretty, um, <clears throat> that was intense. How did you even punch her in just like just driving on those stones fast? Yeah, mate. It's yeah. People don't realize how horrific these cobbles are. Yeah. You haven't done it. and. You know, these some of these cars have quite low-profile tyres on there now, um, and you can get a pinch of flat from the sidewalls very easily. What piece of advice can you give me with my day just around the corner now, feeling pretty nervous? If you can remember back to your first day, or what advice you'd give yourself or me coming to the driving, getting behind the wheel for the first time as a sports director? I think you need to um, remember how limited your interactions are going to be with the rider and try to only give the minimum amount of information you can. Because what's going to make a difference isn't isn't going to be long-winded, it's not going to be a big explanation, it's just going to be at a certain moment, it's going to be whatever information you can give can make a difference. I think you need to know your rider, but it's too easy to feel when you start that you need to be saying something at some times. Actually, it's better not to say something mm. a lot of times. And that would be my takeaway. Well, I'd say uh, before you get into that car, it's best with your planning or your pre-planning, and then it makes it easy when you sit in that car. You will probably be nervous, uh, but I mean, it'll be a smaller sort of peloton. But you know, the thing is when you're driving for the first time and there's all this other stuff going on, the race radio and, you know, rider radio, uh, car to car, what we had, yeah, you can get quite overwhelmed. So it can be very overwhelming. And, and you know, the first time someone will have a puncture and you might be a bit indecisive of what to do after an hour or so, you'll be right, mate. I tell you, the normal sport director 
he will shit his pants to drive the car in the column. And the first days, they are really, really scary. And I think, I mean, anyway, you know how the riders are moving and it's good, but you want to do it like perfect. And then it depends now as many times as two directors in the first car. My first race was alone and I was so scared to drive around these riders and then the worst case was the rider was in the in the breakaway and I need to pass the peloton and I was so scared and I think things like this you want to take the numbers you want to inform the riders you will be so so nervous I think this is the what you can expect the, the advice would be the other sport directors they know it's your first day in the car and they will take care of you you don't need to be too stressed but I mean in the end it's really you can I think you cannot really enjoy it but you should try. <laughs> Just do all the admin before you go to the race. You don't want to get to, I know you're riding across, but you don't want to get to Ballarat and the night before the race when you'd rather be having a beer with your mates or something. You don't want to be going, oh, I can't do that because I've got to prepare a bloody daily plan or a PowerPoint or a strategy or something. Get all that stuff done well and truly in advance. So when you get to the race, you only have to be reacting to situations at the race rather than trying to catch up with all the shit you should have done at home. Definitely being organized and thinking through all the situations that will will play out. For sure, it's a reactive job that you need to be decisive in and the feedback needs to be fast. You know, it's better to make a quick, good decision than a slow, perfect decision. That'd be the advice I'd, I'd give to you, but you only get to those decisions because you've done the preparation beforehand. You know, knowing your opponents, knowing your strength, knowing what's realistic and, and having a, a plan that you go to, but then when you react, be sure of yourself. I think that decisiveness, you know, it's not a democracy at the end of the day. You know, you want you want someone that's gonna make big decisions for you at those critical moments. Yeah, be decisive, be prepared. Yeah, be passionate about what you're doing and believe in the plan. Well, I've learned what I can from the best. It's time to put it all into practice. Race day. Here we go. National Championships. I've got Brett Lancaster in the car with me. Brendan Trekkie Johnson on the road. Mate, big day's arrived. We've just stepped out of the uh, director's meeting. How are you all feeling now? You've got all the information in your head and you're ready to rock and roll? Yeah, it's exciting, Mitch, that the um, the day's yeah, here and we've had lots of phone combos and yeah, the final sort of meeting and, and prep has, um, has all happened and it's exciting. You know, it's it's so so good to have your input and um, yeah, for once I feel like I'm not flying so blind in this race. I've got you know a clear idea of what's what's going to go down or possibly could could go down and um yeah kind of got plans for each of those situations so it's yeah it's comfy for me now i really want to be able to show my my cards deep into the race you know a few laps to go is or even earlier is um i think where my kind of engines start to tick really well and and i can hopefully make an impact and and um yeah make a you know a, a leap for the um the victory but it's there's so many so many good riders here and um yeah it's just so many ways you can play out as we've spoken about but yeah for me i just i just want a solid race and um yeah the fatigue to build for everyone else i feel like i i remain pretty pretty comfy when it um you know throughout the day and everyone kind of fatigues off and i kind of start to come come good or, or stay the same you know so that's what i want from tomorrow well you're my one and only rider i'm looking forward to steering the ship for you mate thanks for having me on board Here we are, we've just stuck the sticker on the car, we've got the accreditation, we've got the radio on car about an hour before the start. Oh, I'm feeling nervous. First day as a DS, mate, you feeling my nerves? No, I'm not, mate, you seem alright. I'm, uh, 
nearly fallen asleep here, mate. Just want some action to get started. No, it's all good, mate. Um, nice day for it, and um, really looking forward to it, actually. We've got the full rack on the car, race ready, bikes ready to go on. We've got to go pick up all the equipment now from Trekkie and the other riders that we're supporting today. So um, let's go get ready. Bert, four minutes to start. Got the uh, iPad rolling here. Highlighted the names, mate. Should we crack into lunch? Yeah, well, there's usually a rule, at least one o'clock in the DS car, mate. So we've got a few minutes and we'll... Actually, we'll wait till they kick off in case there's a mechanical. Get up over the hill, then we can crack her open. So you, you, you're not allowed to crack it open before the race starts? No, no, that's, that's an unwritten rule, mate, in the, in the DS book. What are mechanics like? So if race starts at 10, they'll generally try and wait it out, especially in the classics, to one o'clock. It's like one o'clock's their rule, a lot of mechanics. What happens if you're in Poland and the race starts at four? <laughs> yeah, well, you're in a bit of strife then, aren't you? <laughs> well, you're getting into the DS lunch back at the hotel. Yeah, that can be done as well. If you're lucky, you can get um, some of the riders' food as well. Now, I didn't know exactly what a DS lunch involves, but I get to see the Swanniers put together the little lunch. So on the way down here, I got a paper bag. I filled it with a few little snacks that I thought would be good because I wanted to get the full experience. Run me through a... Uh, little lunchbox that you get in the cars overseas well it can vary mitch you know so if we've got a carer the swanee a, a spanish one he can be doing the tapas or anything you know his name really? yeah yeah he, he gets into that um daniela she's an italian for she do like a really good chicken sanger um and then you know if we're lucky because we've got a very good chef in our team and that you get the leftovers from the night before they box it up so you can have steak or anything in the car you know <laughs> well i don't know if mine's going to be that good i uh, it's a sunday here and i was a bit late you've got the pringles though i see that that's that's a key one that one mate the mini pack too yeah exactly well i can see the boys lining up and at this moment i'm happy i'm not on the start line i'm ready to go let's go the national road race title boys are doing 185.6 kilometers 16 laps around this bunny long circuit Alright boys, it's been a hectic start. It's actually a group of riders getting dropped here. 40k into the race, or 45k into the race. We've had to move up a couple of times. We got called to the front. It's been hectic. I don't even know how you can do this overseas because I'm looking at boards. I've got two radios going. I'm trying to tell people to hold out signs for colours and I haven't barely seen any of the race. And yet for you, Brett, this is just pretty relaxed, isn't it? Yeah, this is pretty chilled. It's like anything, Mitch, you sort of... You get used to it, don't you? So many. Well, I was seven years as a as a director, sports director, and now <clears throat> you just come accustomed to the pressure and multitasking. I don't even know how they would have done it back in the day, driving, doing all this, because we've worked out this system today. Because there's no radios um, directly to the riders, we've got two people on course, and you know this is 11.6k course. Um, and we've got two people, one through the feed zone, obviously giving him feed, but also relaying our messages from the car. Um, and and a, a guy rolling around the back. We've got Chris in the feed zone. We've got rolling around the back at the university also relaying some messages. So we can we can relay the time gaps to Trekkie. We can also relay who's in the breakaway. But also we've got a colour code system where we've sort of just done, look, red means stop whatever you're doing go back it's not working orange is a bit of caution keep working 
as you are, look for look for moves if they're going. And green means, all right, mate, it's time to go. Let's attack. Let's get across the let's get across the break. Let's, let's game on. Green lights are go. So we've put an orange out at the moment because Trekkie at the moment is there's a break of 16 up the road. Um, they've got two and a half minutes on the bunch. We've got 14 laps to go, and Trekkie is in another group. We don't know how big that group is, but he is halfway across at the moment. He's one minute 10 behind the uh, the front group of 16. Looks like they will get across, but they've been hovering there for a couple laps. You just got something passed in the window there. Who was that guy? Mate, that's a great hamburger from a good friend of mine, Dan Cronin, who, uh, who runs and owns the uh, Western Hotel here in Ballarat. And um, yeah, I usually camp up there at night with him, or you know, <laughs> when we're here in Ballarat, he looks after us. So yeah, bloody ripper of a bloke. Uh, that's the best thing about the Nationals, opposed, I guess, to the World Tour, is that you're going on the same circuit and you know people here. They can just hand you things in from the window. I guess you're never going to get that in a in a World Tour race, are you? Well, you wouldn't want that every day because, you know, you'd be 200 kilo because a bloody good feed would be too, much, too many calories. But, yeah, nah, bloody great. Good, good on him. All right, let's get back into it here. Hundred k to go, boys. Time is ticking by here in the car. I tell you, it's so much stuff to do. Watching the TV, getting numbers. Brett, you've just needed a coffee. You're dying over there, mate. It's that relaxed for you, isn't it? Yeah, I, do. I mean, my old man was on the side of the road, so we called him up and got a coffee. Pretty stress-free race for me, mate. Oh, I'm, I'm buzzing here, mate. I'm trying to make calls and do everything. Busy. I'm gonna have a good sleep tonight. Hundred k to go. We're looking in a good position. Trekkie is now just about to join the front. The two front groups are getting closer together. Um, but as we speak, Luke Durbridge has gone off the front of the front group. So he is now away with another rider. So could be concerning 100k to go. It could be a long effort. Do you think he's got the stamina to go from here, Bert? Yeah, I mean, but if he wants to win today, this is what he has to do, you know. Um, so he's just going to put all his cards down and, and have a crack now. Oh... Stressful, mate, isn't it? Just we've just called the pull the pull the trigger. We got 80k to go. Trekkie's group is slipping behind here. Durbo's on the attack. We've just told him to go on the attack. We've been discussing it back and forth, haven't we, Bert? Yeah, it's probably it's a good option. No, we just said Caleb Ewan's in there still, and if he gets a sniff of the of the finish, you know, two laps to go, he might get over it. So and he, no one will beat him. So this could uh, hopefully form a little group that can try and get across to the next group it's hard making the calls here in the car i tell you you just you got to go arming and ahhing it and you what's the right thing to do but you got to make a call i guess don't you brett yeah like we said it's hard to make that call when you don't have direct um radio coverage so um getting that message across is quite difficult but um yeah you can just sit on your hands all day and play the waiting game and it might come back they might blow up in the front but yeah i think on a circuit like this it's always better to be on the have a have a real dig early on sometimes mitch here things are starting to really heat up here mate what's the situation we've got to think uh come around for four to go is that correct it is 50k to go um it's hectic out there like I'm, I feel nervous for Trekkie. He's, um, he's done everything right so far. He's gone across the gaps. It's just a small group in the front now. I think it's about 12 riders of the best riders. And he's looking really good. 
So it's just it's so hectic here to try and communicate, talk to people on the side of the road. I'm thankful for the two people we've got on the side of the road, Roland and Chris. They're giving me information because I'm struggling to work out what's going on in the race. It's all delayed and I'm trying to give advice, but I'm all over the place. It's stressful. Yeah, you're doing a great job, Mitch, I must say. it's. Uh, I do remember my first ever day I IDSed in Europe and I got that nervous. I had to actually take a toilet stop, mate. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, pretty tough. Well, 32k to go, mate. Two and a half laps. We're still in the race. 16 guys left. It's been a hell of a lot more stressful than I thought it would have been. I'm happy you're still there. It's hard getting the calls across. We haven't been speaking to Sean, who's in the back here the whole time. How's your day been, mate? It's like driving to work, just staring at tail lights the whole time. Tranquil back here, we've got a good driver. Like being in a limousine, so yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. Oh, far out. It's happening, Bert. One lap to go. We're coming to last lap, and we've been given green all day. Um, we're just going past out. Have you got any beers to try out of the window? I'm getting a bit nervous. Yeah, we do. We do. Yeah. Do you want a beer? Yeah, go. I'll grab it. Okay, we'll stop here. Yeah, always got to carry a couple of beers in the car. That's DS rule. So hopefully Trekkie can sit on because he's feeling it. I'll see you at the finish. Last lap. Mate, it's happening because our man Trekkie, he's out the front. He's laid it on the line. One and a half, uh, two and a half laps to go. He's in a group with Jimmy Whelan, a couple of others. Couldn't have done much more, could we, Brett? No, he couldn't have. I mean, um, he, he really committed. That's what he had to do, you know. Get so many Jayco riders back there and teammates. So it was the perfect move, and let's just see if he can hang on now. And even if not, he's out the front. If they come across, he could be, you know, struggle all over the top and come down to a little bit of a bunch sprint. It's perfect. It's really good. I'm really proud of him, actually. Bloody great. Yeah, last lap, bell lap, time gap. Front four riders, two, three, seven, fifty-eight. Two, three, seven, and fifty-eight had a twenty-one second lead. Twenty-one second lead over the peloton. Oh boys, that's it. That's a wrap. We're just driving in, just did the deviation. Our men didn't win, Trekkie, but we're also supporting Clarkie today and he had a phenomenal ride, finishing, uh, I think, third there in the end. Mate, I don't know, like, have I got the bug? What do you think, Bert? Have I got the have I got the making of a DS? How'd I go? No, really well. And as you could see, mate, it was like, it is exciting, isn't it? You know, and, you know, I've just given away that game of DSing, but, um, you can, you can feel those, that's the reason why those pinch points at the moment, when it's exciting, yeah, that's what cycling's all about, isn't it, Mitch? It's a lot of work, I have to admit, and I didn't do a tenth of what you guys normally do. I did it, you know, we're on a circuit, so it wasn't much research, and, but I did notice there's a lot of organisation and a lot, a lot of stuff I had to do behind the scenes that I didn't expect, so I did find out quite a lot. I really enjoyed working with trekkie and this this plan and this project you've got together and that's what it'd be like with the team but a bigger aspect like you said but like you said it's so good being in the moment in the race you get so much more out of a race doing it like that oh yeah mate it's um i think you might have the bug by the sounds of it buddy thanks mate thanks for taking me on board and sean 
Thanks for being in the back. You were very, very good with the numbers. I couldn't have done it without you. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, Trekkie, well, here we are, mate. We're at the end of the race. What a massive project, really. Nationals, and the effort you put in. Um, mate, to be honest with you, I said it in the car, I was so proud with the way you rode, but look, I was so removed from the whole situation. What was it like out there, and what are your feelings after the race? And I guess, what was it? What was the feeling like having a whole team behind you? Um, that, that in particular was awesome. I just felt, yeah, really confident in the decisions I was making, yeah, after yeah, getting the information from yourself from the car, and um, yeah, just knowing what you know, and it just felt like, you know, there was more people kind of, kind of with me, and, and you know, making the calls, and and in the race, it really did. Um, I mean that, yeah. So, yeah, it was it was just great to have information from outside that was coming through. You know, we had Clarkie as well that came back, I think, and just chatting with him. And um, yeah, it was good on the road there. A couple of us individuals kind of got chatting, and Plappy was always yeah really good. And against the big Green Edge squad, it was good that there was a bit of camaraderie and yeah, like yeah, that info. So have, and having the team, you know, on the road and. Yeah, in the car, it was just um, just extra confidence for me. Um, and, yeah, I think I tactically rode a perfect race. I just, yeah, just failed at um, a couple of points where, where it was crucial. But big journey to here. And, and to be honest, it's been really fun. Yeah, I, I felt like I was in shape. I probably wasn't, didn't turn up feeling the greatest today. You know, when I first rolled out, I was just a bit off, um, which is disappointing after the effort put in. But, yeah, I think pretty much executed it perfectly. Just, um, yeah, a couple of points didn't have it most disappointing thing for me was you didn't come back to the car i didn't even get my moment to yell out to the window to you <laughs> yeah it's actually it was pretty hectic today the race was on uh, most of the time to be honest and and there was a big split early i think so i don't know where you were but maybe behind the behind the big split a long way behind so um yeah it's not like your typical race where you can just drop back and um say good day it was it was on all day i think I was going to come up and get you because I had some information, but exactly what you said, I didn't want you to waste any energy, and I knew that it looked from from what the limited information I could get back there, that you had really things under control. You rode a really great race, really conservative when you needed to be, and really aggressive when you needed to be. And look, as a as your DS, as my debut DS, my debrief would be: you can take a lot away from this, mate. Um, be really proud with the way you rode. And as we spoke the weeks before, it's sometimes not the end goal that you get, it's the, the process and what you learn out of that. I think, sounding from it, you did learn a lot out of this and you can take that on to your next adventures coming up. Yeah, absolutely. Like a, like the preparation and, and just the chats we've had, you know, every few days, to be honest, has been so so valuable for me. And um, yeah, just thanks very much for um, being so generous with your knowledge and um, yeah, your time as well. Obviously, it's it's a full day and uh, weekend. So, um, yeah, it's been great to have your help. And, um, yeah, I've learned a lot, I think, um, preparation-wise and, and also, you know, just throughout the race. I think now I'm probably considered to be a bit of a threat and um, mm. not only sort of with strength but with, with tactics as well. And, um, yeah, I'll, I'll take take a lot on board from, from this experience. Awesome, mate. Let's go enjoy a cold beer. Well, how do you think I did? Firstly, did you learn something? Did I learn anything? It was so stressful. I can't tell you how stressful it was, and I am so thankful that I had Brett there to steer the ship for me. I know it was super relaxed for him, but it was so stressful in the car for me. I could have never have driven the car as well and done the job. Look, I know that was only a very small piece of what it's really like over in Europe, but it was such a great experience, and I really loved 
picking the brains of all those great friends of mine and really, really good DSs over there in Europe. Of course, I love the fact that Brendan saw that in me and wanted me to be on his team. Thanks, mate. You did an awesome job. Like I said, I was really proud. Guys, I want to say thanks to Will Jones who edited this episode and put it all together for you because there was a lot of audio and he made the story run smoothly. Meg behind the scenes, who is also really helping me with the edits as well and doing all the other nuts and bolts you guys don't get to see. Guys, it's been great. And of course, this podcast doesn't happen without our partners, Rafa. Until next time, guys, I've got a great episode coming up for you. What is mountain bike? I'll tell you a bit more about that in two weeks' time. Cheers. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.